Um, so I'm curious, for those of you who can remember, um, when, you, when you move into your, uh, when you move into a house, when you move into a new space, um, what's the first thing that you set up? What kitchen. is the first thing that you set up? Uh, maybe some people can put in the chat. Uh, when you move into a house, when you move into a new space, what's the first thing that you're looking to get set up and situated? I'm curious. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, good. Yes. Bedroom, kitchen. Wow. Immediately, there's a lot of bed and bedroom and kitchen. That's basically the two options so far. <laughs> Other things? Other things? Yes, the direction of the bed. Oh, yes, yes. Kitchen and bed. Yes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep. Um, I will say that for me, oh, toilet paper and toiletries. Mm, that's unique. The bathroom. The bathroom. It's an important place. Yep. Any others? Any others? Just put them in the chat. <laughs> I will say uh, this week, um, in preparation for us getting <laughs> Sarah Park, I order KFC and eat it on the floor. Praise God. Um, I love that. Um, in, in preparation for us getting a new housemate, um, um, our current housemate and us, we switched rooms. And so we had this extensive conversation it wasn't like we were moving into a new space, but we were moving into a new room and we had this extensive conversation about where to put the bed. And it got me thinking about this. And I, I do think that for me, it's the bed. For me, I'm like, where am I going to sleep? What's the position of the bed? Like if I lay on it, how do I feel in the room? Right? Like how do I feel sleeping? How do I feel laying down here? Um, and so we've been settling into our, our, our front bedroom in our house for a couple of nights, and it's felt nice. And, but, but certainly where the bed is is important. Some of you will recall that we are in a series called Returning and Rebuilding, um, where we are exploring kind of post-exilic life, life after the exile for the people of God, particularly from the lenses of the books of Ezra and Haggai. And um, as we move to chapter three, the people of God are in their space. They have gone back to Jerusalem. They are settling into their own towns. And for them, as a community, the goal is to get the temple rebuilt, right? King Cyrus has made it clear, this is what I want to do. I want to rebuild the temple. And what's interesting is that Je Yeshua, son of Josadak, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with their kin, set out to build the altar of the God of Israel. That's what they do first. And I, I read this and I was surprised because King Cyrus is like, go back and build the temple. I'm going to give you all this stuff. And they go back and they get into their places. And I'm sure they're rebuilding their houses individually and maybe having that kind of conversation too. But as they begin to kind of reestablish what worship looks like, they build the altar first. They build the altar first. And it made me wonder why. Why do they build the altar first? Why don't they build the temple, start building the temple, 
right? At the end of this passage, we see that the foundation of the temple isn't even laid, but they chose to build the altar first. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. What is this altar they built? Why might they have chosen to build it first? What does that mean for them? And what could that mean for us? And so one of the things that you will observe in this passage, um, and just so you know, Will, I don't think I have slides. Um, uh, just so you all know, I don't generally preach with slides, but it especially wasn't going to happen this week because Amara was at home with us four days this week. And so we just didn't have time for that. So <laughs> just so you know. Um, but, but one of the things that you will observe as you read the beginning of Ezra chapter 3 is uh, the reoccurrence of after they rebuilt the altar of this word sacrifice. They start doing sacrifices on this altar. And I just got to say that um, as I was reading Ezra, I was being reminded of the fact that in my cultural disposition, animal sacrifice is not normal. That's not a usual thing that I engage in. It's not a thing that is like familiar to me in any kind of significant way, right? We read about animal sacrifice in the scriptures and it can be easy to sort of desensitize that and to just sort of load it with our previous cultural or biblical knowledge and kind of make it normal. But what I wanna do is strip that back a little bit and talk about what the altar was and what these sacrifices were and why they were so meaningful, especially in this post-exile moment. In the Near East context, um, in the nations that are around Jerusalem, animal sacrifice is quite normal. Um, and usually it has to do with non-human animals, although human sacrifice wasn't like a unheard of thing. But in most of the religions in the Near East, um, there was a view of the gods in which the desire um, or the sort of alleged desire in relationship to those gods is we have to make them happy. We have to make sure they're not mad at us. And we, what we think will, will, will uh, represent that is if we kind of give away these animals, like if we burn these animals, if we take this livestock of worth and we burn it up, then the gods will know we love you. We need you so bad. <laughs> Please don't be mad at us. Please let our crops grow. Please let our kingdom flourish. Please let our children be in abundance. Um, it was sort of a placation energy about animal sacrifice and in general about kind of worship, right? Let's not make the gods mad. Let's make sure they know that we see them and we're, we're begging them to be happy with us. In the Jewish context, however, this doesn't make any sense. Nothing about worship of Yahweh was about placating an angry God. Because from the beginning, God was pleased with creation. Remember all that? It was good. It was good. It was very good. That was, that was the relationship between creatures and the creator. You are good. You are very good. <laughs> and there's times where we can look at what happens next and we can see how the image bearers mess all that up. And we can think to ourselves, well, God doesn't think we're good or very good anymore, which is a lie. 
God still maintains God's feeling of goodness and celebration about all creation. So when God sets up what it means to worship, there is no sense of placating an angry God because God is pleased with us. God likes us <laughs> because God made us. And so the enterprise of worship in the people of God was a way to remember who God was, to celebrate who God was, and to tell the truth. Um, it was to tell the truth. Because you see, from Genesis 2, <laughs> we all know the ways that in the midst of God's pleasure over us, in the midst of the ways that God loves us and sees us and knows us, there is a way that we can choose out of that love and choose out of being seen by God, right? And God knows that. God is very aware. And so really what these sacrifices were, and you can read about all of them in Leviticus. I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus. I'm, I, don't, I can't believe I'm saying this, but read Leviticus. It's great. <laughs> because all these sacrifices are there. And in their context, what God is trying to do is establish um, some liturgies, some, some tangible ways to rehearse the goodness of God, some tangible ways to rehearse what it means for us to be in covenant with God, and some tangible ways for us to rehearse what it means that God wants to reestablish that covenant every time we break it. <laughs> um, it's, it's incredible, right? And there are some things that, that, I, that I will say, right? Like the sacrifices had three kind of purposes, okay? Um, first, they declare a relationship with God, right? When I'm talking about remembering who God is, remembering that God made us, that is declaring that God is creator, that God has freed us from oppression, that we are nothing without God. And we declare that there is nothing else that can do what God has promised to do. That, that God is unique in God's ability to bring freedom. God is unique in God's ability to, to remind us of the fact that we are loved and kept and held. Um, so we declare that we say, yes, God, it's you. Yes, God. It's you as you. And, and, and furthermore, what we say is that as God has given of God's self to save us, right? A lot of times what they did is that when they made the sacrifice of an animal, they will put their hand on the animal. And as they put their hand on this animal, what they're basically saying is that as this animal kind of gives its life in this ceremony, so too am I reaffirming that I give my life to God, right? I am reaffirming in this moment that I want to be a part of God's purposes with all of my life. I withhold nothing in terms of being a part of the way that God is bringing shalom to this land, shalom to my community. I rededicate my life to God, right? The sacrifices were a declaration about God. These sacrifices were also a declaration about sin. 
about the the patterns of abuse, the patterns of violence that 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 sort of uh, declare that we don't trust God. And essentially, what they say is that I no longer want to participate in those patterns anymore. First of all, it's us saying no. It's us saying I don't participate. But the sacrifices were also a way that God says, I'm removing the power of that violence on your destiny. I am removing the power of that, of, of all of that on your life, right? You don't have to be stuck in that pattern because I am freeing you. I am making a way forward for you, right? When we make this declaration of a relationship to sin, what we're saying is A, I don't want to do that. And B, God, you freed, you have freed us from that. And you have made a way into covenant again. And thirdly, by implication, these sacrifices are also declaring a relationship with the community of creation. Right? The un unspoken understanding that we see in Ezra 3 is that they're doing this together. They are declaring all of these things about God, they are declaring this sort of adverse relationship to sin in community. And their understanding of God was that God makes us a people. And their understanding of sin was that sin is a communal reality. So when they come together and they do these sacrifices, they are recommitting to each other as God's people. They are recommitting to each other and saying, no, I choose not to do violence against my neighbor. I choose not to covet my neighbor's stuff. I choose not to, to enter, engage in anger and whatever might, like, might fray up the fabric of our community. I choose out of those things. I choose into generosity. I choose into hospitality. I choose to welcome the stranger. I choose to clothe the people that need to be clothed. I choose to feed the people that need to be fed. So these sacrifices, they declare a relationship to God. They declare a relationship to sin, and they declare a relationship with the community of the Creator. And now can you see why they would build the altar first, friends? Because essentially, the reason they were in exile is because they had a terrible relationship with all of those things. <laughs> Right? The reason they ended up in exile is because they denied God as their creator and source of continuous life and freedom. They accepted idols. They accepted objects as their God. They worshipped rulers and all the power that they had as false gods who eventually led them into injustice and dehumanization. By the time they ended up in exile, the poor were being trampled in Israel. The, the widows couldn't get an ounce of justice in Judah. The community of creation was falling apart because the people of God had basically shucked their responsibilities. And so part of coming back to the land was re-engaging the covenant with God that was based on remembering God declaring a, 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 a true relationship to sin and the fact that we choose out of God's covenant and committing to truth-telling and vulnerability and mutual self-giving within the community of creation. They needed to figure out how to be God's people again. And the activity of sacrifice 
is this thick liturgy that gave them access to that. This week, I watched the debates. Maybe you did too. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you chose out for the sake of your mental health. Um, I chose in because I just, it was, a, it was I knew it was going to be that car wreck on the side of the freeway that I, that I couldn't look away from. That was kind of my energy in looking at the debates. And, you know, there was a lot of shouting and yelling, and it was very sad, and it was sort of a, the way that, like, like two stressed out four-year-olds communicate to each other. I don't know if you've all seen that. Um, it's just a lot of shouting and yelling, and no one's really hearing each other, and they're not trying to hear each other, that kind of thing. But what really got me was when our current president uh, sort of gave a new motto to a hate group. <laughs> that was the moment that got me. That was the moment that got me. It got me personally because a few weeks ago in San Leandro, people potentially that are a part of that hate group or others sprayed Nazi symbols on the streets of San Leandro. So this, it wasn't sort of like a vague um, kind of existential thing when the president chooses to not decry white supremacy. That's a real thing that has real consequences, right? But as I thought about Ezra 3 and sacrifice, what, part of what I think we are seeing right now is that it's hard to tell the truth. It's hard to tell the truth. But we need to. As a people, we need to tell the truth about how we have broken God's covenant. It's hard to do so, right? America has a really hard time telling the truth, right? Some of us want to keep up Confederate flags and monuments. We don't want to tell the truth. Our government wants to trample on the rights of Native peoples by never acknowledging that they've broken hundreds and thousands of treaties. We don't want to tell the truth. There are systemic injustice deniers. There are slave deniers, slavery deniers. There are people who simply think that the reason that black people in this country have a hard time is that they don't work hard enough and their families are falling apart because they're lazy. People don't want to tell the truth. We have the pay gap problem in this country. Women get paid 82 cents on the dollar. Black women get paid 62 cents on the dollar. Latino women get paid 54 cents on the dollar. Native women get paid 57 cents on the dollar, and we don't want to talk about it. We have a hard time telling the truth. This is what sin looks like. All of these things are what the fraying between God and creation and between the created order looks like. This is why the Israelites were given sacrifice because it's meant to be a space where God says, I know you struggle to be faithful to me and good to each other. Come back into my love. Come back into my grace. Choose to be loving and generous the way that I have been to you. 
choose into freedom and to releasing the captives the way that I have released you. This is what worship is supposed to be. This is what it means for us to gather together as the people of God. It is okay to tell the truth and to say that we are having a hard time being human because God already knows. God already knows. And friends, let me make this clear. As we gather each and every Sunday, and as churches gather, each and every Sunday, the extent to which we as the people of God are unable to tell the truth, and as the black saints would say, and shame the devil, is the extent to which we are basically participating in a cover-up. It's no wonder that Amos says, I hate, I despise your feasts. It's no wonder that God says, I don't need your sacrifice. I need your contrite heart that tells the truth about the ways that you struggle to keep my covenant. That's what I need from you. If when we come together before God, we do not or cannot tell the truth about how amazing God's covenant is and how hard of a time we have keeping it, then what we're doing is a show, friends. It's just a show. It's a show and it's a sham. It's a monument unto itself, and y'all know about what God does when we build monuments unto ourselves. God will scatter us. God will scatter us. And that's what God did to the exilic people. He scattered them. And as they come back together, they choose to make sacrifices. Because part of what they realize is that they had forgotten how to tell the truth. How to say, God, you're good. We have a hard time being your people. Thank you for re-inviting us every time. Forgive us. We accept your grace. Help us be better. This is what's behind the discipline of confession that we are going to practice this morning. This is why we do confession. Confession is not a practice of self-flagellation. It's not a practice of self-hatred. It is actually a practice of telling the truth and of reflecting on the great and deep love of God. And in our way of saying, God, this is what you've done. This is the space you've invited us into. This is the covenant you've invited us into. And here are the ways that I have had a hard time living in that. But God, you already know it. And you are already inviting me back in as I choose out. You are saying, come back in. It's the way that we sometimes grab little babies as they're definitely going to like crawl into an area that they shouldn't be in. And you're like, no, 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 no. Come back, come back, come back. <laughs> That is how God is with us. No, 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 no. Come back, come back, come back. And so we are going to take some time this morning, right now, in confession. And we're just going to allow for us to tell the truth about the ways that we struggle to live in God's covenant. 
about the ways that that we feel that we have been complicit in injustice, complicit in dehumanization. And this is not a time for self-condemnation, friends. Because you were made in the image of God and God said, this is very good. This is a time as we rest in the very goodness of creation to ask for God to restore us and to renew us. And so we're going to take a moment of silence right now um, just for us to calm our hearts um, and perhaps to allow for God to bring to mind some ways that um, we have struggled to live in covenant. Maybe it's not going to take you very long. Maybe they're already fresh on top of your mind. Maybe you just need a space, a moment just to take a breath and to kind of reflect. We'll do that for a moment, and then we're going to pray a, a prayer of confession together. So I'll give us a moment in silence to confess before the Lord. <clears throat> 